0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to the Van Leer Institute series on ideas. I'm your host, Renee Garfinkel, and I'm delighted to welcome Khan Coughlin to the show today to talk about his new book, Assad, The Triumph of Tyranny. Con Coughlin is the executive foreign editor of the Daily Telegraph and a world-renowned expert on the Middle East. He's the critically acclaimed author of the New York Times bestseller, Saddam, His Rise and Fall, as well as Khomeini's Ghost: The Iranian Revolution and the Rise of Militant Islam, and Churchill's First War, Young Winston at War with the Afghans. Khan Coughlin, welcome to the podcast.
2: It's a great pleasure to be with you.
1: Khan, you've been a foreign correspondent reporting from and about very challenging situations for more than 40 years. What is it about this dangerous journalism that you find compelling?
2: Um, Well, you're quite right, Renny. I've I've been doing this for four decades. I I first started my career in the Middle East uh, in 1983 when I was parachuted into Beirut after the American Marine compound had been blown up. Um, of course, subsequently, we found it was blown up by Hezbollah, which was a very new organisation at that point. And I suppose um, I just became very fascinated with the region. I've lived in the region for many years, and I've covered, unfortunately, a lot of wars in the region. And it's not the danger that's ever attracted me. It, it's more the fascination with the issues, whether it was the Iran-Iraq War, whether it was the Intifadas, um, whether it was dealing with, you know, the, the the rather deranged Colonel Gaddafi in Libya. I've just found the the whole structure um uh, of, of the, some of the political challenges that the region's faced over the years intellectually stimulating. Um, and you know that that is what's led me to write several books on the region and um led me to write my latest book on on Assad and Syria.
1: And uh, how has the Middle East changed since your first assignment from uh, Beirut in 1983 during Lebanon's brutal civil war?
2: Well, I can't say it's changed for the better, René, I'm afraid. I mean, I, I was ref- after the terrible October the 7th attacks, I was reflecting that, you know, I was in Gaza in uh, late 1987 when the first Intifada started, um, and I, I reflect on you know, those times when people were just throwing stones at you um, and what is going on now and, you know, the whole militarization of these Islamist terror groups is something is a new phenomenon. It didn't exist when I first arrived. As I said, when we, we, we had Hezbollah in Lebanon uh, but it wasn't something that was directly um, um, active in, in the West Bank and Gaza and I think Probably the most significant change I've seen, which started, of course, with the Iranian Revolution, is the group of these very extremist Islamic groups um, that r- rely on terrorism to get their to get their way, and uh, it's it's really changed the whole nature of it. You know, we've seen it in Iraq, we've seen it in Afghanistan, and now, unfortunately, we're seeing it in Gaza and the West Bank, um, as well as other parts of the Middle East, Syria. Um, southern Lebanon, etc. And, and this is this is a real menace to the whole region. And and one of my frustrations is that too many Arab governments don't really fully understand that these groups pose as much a threat to the stability of the Arab world, as they do to Israel's survival.
1: Well, you one would think that they recognize it, they've had their own conflicts with uh, the Houthis and the Saudis, for example. But let's let's focus on your book um okay uh Bashar al-Assad and his cruelty is the subject of the book and his cruelty was matched by the cruel regime of his father the uh, late president Hafez al-Assad so is it nature or nurture did Bashar learn ruthlessness from his father why were they both so willing to go to extremes to inflict suffering on their people?
2: Well, I, th- I think it would be a, a, a bit of both, to be honest. Um, I mean, I think one of the really surprising aspects of the career of Bashar al-Assad is that he, he, wasn't, he wasn't really born in, into the family to be a dictator. His early life was spent training as a medical student. He wanted to be an ophthalmologic surgeon, and he did some training in London, and, you know, people I've interviewed from his childhood say, say he was a very diffident, gangly teenager, he had a bit of a lisp. He didn't have much confidence um, and he only got got the got propelled into the position of being the heir apparent to his father, Hafez al-Assad, after his elder brother, Basil, died in a car crash. And Basil was was the was the heir apparent in, in this sort of secular dictatorship. A bit of a playboy, and he crashed his car driving too fast on his way to Damascus Airport, um, and suddenly, um, Bashar, who's as I said studying in London, has thrown into the line right. But to to throw to answer your question, um, I mean clearly the Assad the Assad dynasty is a pretty hard bunch that you know that they are Alawites, they are a minority sects in Syria, and. The reason they got to power was was through brute force, so there will be something in his genes that, that relates to that sort of background. But what was interesting researching this book was was talking to people who were appointed by Hafiz al-Assad to train his son to be a dictator, um, and it's it's rather fascinating. You can train people to be a dictator, so and this is where the nurture comes in because. A lot of very serious people in the Arab world were deputed to, to instruct Bashar al-Assad in, in you know, how, how global diplomacy worked, how the Ba'athist structure worked in Syria, etc. So that, so much so that when his father died in 2000, Bashar, who everybody thought was, as I said, this rather diffident, shy person, suddenly emerges as a new strong man in his own right. And within a year, you know, people who thought that there'd be a reform program in Syria under Bashar al-Assad find themselves in prison and subjected to the same brutal repression that uh, the country had endured under the, the, um, the rule of Hafez al-Assad.
1: What exactly did Bashar al-Assad do to the Syrians?
2: Well, uh, ultimately, he brutalized them. I mean, I think the, the story of the, the Syrian civil war is one where a regime under the presidency of Bashar Assad declares war on its own people. And not only does it declare war on its own people, it brutalizes um, the Syrian people. And I think one of the strengths of the book um, is the detail I provide on how Bashar Assad, from a very early stage in the Syrian uprising in 2011, took personal charge of the methods of brutality and repression that were implemented against the anti-government protesters. I mean, everybody will recall the schoolboys who started the anti-government protest in Dera, in Syria's uh, southern border. They were brutalized, which which led to a wider protest over their brutalization, and those Protesting against the treatment of the children were themselves tortured and killed. And but by by the you know within within a couple of years, Bashar al-Assad is personally presiding over an industrial-scale killing machine that is torturing and murdering um opponents of the Assad regime, the Ba'athist regime, at will. And, in quite significant numbers.
1: Yes, before it was over, uh, the reported public numbers are that 500,000 Syrians were killed, millions displaced, Uh, and uh, even 12 years after the conflict, the UN said that more than 15 million Syrians need humanitarian assistance. That's, That's massive, and of course we don't see global protests about that. Uh, But that's a a different subject. Um, You've used the expression, pathological ruthlessness. Uh, Explain what you mean by that.
2: Well, um, I think, I think, coming back to your question, really, about nature and nurture, um, I think there's something deeply wrong, psychologically, with Bashar assad because anybody who can preside over the systematic brutalization of ordinary civilians, that which is what happened um, during the Civil War, must have something wrong with them. And, and you know, one, of the, one of the things I, I find very fascinating studying somebody like Bashar al-Assad is that, and I saw this when I was work, researching Saddam Hussein um, a couple of decades ago. I mean, to be a dictator, you, you have to live in a parallel universe. One where you believe that you're the victim, one where you've never done anything wrong, where the, you believe wholeheartedly that the world is against you. And, that, and, this, and this helps them to justify this almost pathological desire to destroy their enemies. I mean, the the level of ruthlessness required to stay in power as, as, as a dictator whether you're Assad or Saddam Hussein, is 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 quite exceptional. And and when you when you have people like this, I do not think it's an, an exaggeration to say that they have a, a pathological desire to eliminate and brutalise their 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 opponents.
1: Well, do you think uh, that pathological desire that ability? uh if we don't want to speak in the psychological terms we could call it evil uh or sadistic do you think that's personal pathology or cultural pathology
2: well that's a very interesting question i mean i think as as we've seen with the october 7 attacks that there that there, there is this um very very innate uh, violent streak in some parts of the Arab world. And you know, we've seen it when Saddam Hussein you know, gassed the Kurds up at al in 1988. We've seen it with the, the terrible atrocities that Assad uh, committed during the Civil War. I mean, unfortunately, when I was researching the book, I had to w- watch videos of some of the atrocities because one of the tactics used by the regime was to film everything on their mobile phones and then then send it out to the rest of the country as a warning to other opposition groups that this is what is going to happen to you um, if you if you continue your protests and and the same mm. level of appalling violence was clearly evident in in what happened on October the seventh in southern Israel uh, with the Hamas attack. So. You know, I think I think culturally, it is not an exaggeration to say that there is this innate violent streak that you know, to people of a Western persuasion, um, is is very unfamiliar and very unusual.
1: I would say un- unusual is quite a mild term yes. for
2: maybe it's understatement for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, and and some of it is particularly hard to understand. As, the sexual violence including the rape of children uh, and the other kinds of torture i won't describe more graphically uh, that you describe in the book and we've unfortunately heard about in the october 7th what what is that is that to terrify others so that it's not just murder it's all of this other stuff Um, I guess that's why we call it terrorism. Um, Was it effective for Saddam? Did he gain in, uh, I mean, for uh, Bashar al-Assad? Did he gain in stature and respect?
2: Um, I think the answer to that is no. I mean, why do they do it? I mean, and again, it's been my misfortune to to write and study this during my career um, working in the Middle East region. And I think there, coming back to the sort of cultural thing. I think there is certain people take great delight in inflicting humiliating uh, treatment um, on their opponents. Now, it's not this is not exclusively an Arab thing. I think if you look at what happened in Abu Ghraib during the uh, after the, 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 the US led invasion of Iraq, you know, again, the Americans were, were demeaning and degrading prisoners and captives not on the level that we've seen in syria or anywhere else uh, it's a different level but th- this instinct to humiliate uh, to demean your opponents l- r- leads the the likes of assad and his supporters to commit these appalling atrocities you say raping children castrating children um it is it is quite horrific And does it work? Well, I suppose if you look in the round, if you step back and look at Syria today, no, it doesn't. Um, Because Bashar al-Assad, I I, I was very careful in my book never to say that he won the war. He survived the war. That's the verb I've used. He's he's a survivor. Um, And he survived the war mainly because the Iranians and the Russians came in and bailed him out. Um, But because of the Appalling tactics um, he he used against his own people. He alienated most of the population, as you said in your introduction. Um, you know, half the Syrian population has fled from their homes. Um, yeah, you know, there are about three or four million still living outside the country. There's another ten million or so displaced people within Syria itself. Uh, so this is not a vote of confidence in the Af- Assad regime. And the result is that today, while we're talking, Bashar al-Assad and his cronies only control just over 50, 50% of the country. A lot of northern Syria is now an autonomous Kurdish zone. You've got other pockets around the country that are controlled by various rebel groups, some of them of an Islamist persuasion, it must be said, particularly around Idlib. Um, Assad himself has had a very hollow victory. You know, he may have survived the war and he may still be in power, but he doesn't really control all of the country. Moreover, the country is economically a basket case and relies on sort of a new drugs trade that the Assad regime has established in the Middle East to keep it in power. Basically, what, what keeps Bashar Assad in power is the money he gets from selling captagon around the Arab world so you know his 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 reward for surviving the war is to, is to have turned Syria into a narco state <laughs>
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: Everything you described, the extraordinary cruelty, the systematic murder and rape and torture, uh, both physical and psychological, that did characterize the uh, Hamas's October 7th attack. Um, but even before that savage event, uh, unlike uh, Assad, who was on his way to becoming an ophthalmologist, uh, uh, the Hamas leader, Sinwar, had a reputation for violence and ruthlessness to his own people. He was, in fact, uh, called the butcher of Khan Um So what are your thoughts about the similarities and differences between the two evil leaders? Are they just products of their environment? Uh, are they different? They seem the same to us because we're overwhelmed by the cruelty. But uh, you've looked deeply into it. Compare and contrast them, please.
2: Well, I, th- I think that there are similarities. I mean, I think the 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 the, the, f- the first comparison that comes to mind is the the level of fanaticism that you get um, either within the leadership of Hamas or the leadership of the Baath Party, and I mean, they the, they they are f- the, the the difference. I think is that the Assad regime in Syria a lot of it has been motivated over the last 40 or 50 years by the need to survive. As I said, the Alawites are a minority group and they've had this endless battle for legitimacy within the majority Sunni Muslim population in Syria. So that's quite an important element of the the Ba'athist mindset Whereas with Hamas, you've just got this fanatical creed, which is comes from the Islamist threat that we've talked about earlier, um, where it's all almost nihilistic because so much of their belief is that you know they do what they are doing, they are doing in the name of Allah, um, and that justifies everything. And that so the big difference between what Hamas is doing and what the Assad regime is doing. The Assad regime, of course, is secularist um, in its outlook uh, and has fought many wars against Islamic Islamist extremists, which is why, eventually, they expelled Ham- the Hamas leadership from, from Damascus, if you recall, any for, for many years, the Hamas leadership was based in Damascus. But when Islamic State and the, the Nusra Front and all these Islamist groups emerged to challenge Assad, you know, they had quite... Quite close links with Hamas. So Hamas was evicted and now resides in Qatar. So there are similarities. I mean, the methods are very similar. The wanton violence is very similar. But I think you make the one must make the distinction between the you know the secular, Baathist outlook and and the Islamist extremism that characterizes Hamas.
1: And uh, Assad's. Uh rampage against his own people didn't occur in a vacuum what did it mean for assad and for syria when iran joined them and 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 how did russia get involved in-
2: well this this is this, this, these are the turning points uh, in the conflict i mean first of all as as most israelis will know um the assad regime for many years has been a very close strategic partner of tehran even though as i said it's a a secular uh, regime primarily of Sunni Muslims and etc the um, the Iranians have had this strategic partnership with Damascus going back to the 1980s when they first established uh, Hezbollah in southern Lebanon and i remember i remember very clearly um, being in beirut in the early 80s and having to leave beirut because of the threat to Hezbollah when they started kidnapping Westerners in Beirut. So this has been, and and Syria, the Syrian intelligence, the Mahabharat, worked very closely with Iran to facilitate the establishment of Hezbollah in Lebanon. So these are very deep-seated ties. And when, during the civil war in Syria, it looked as though the Assad regime, through its own incompetence, despite the brutality of its methods, it alienated a lot of people and, and half the military just disappeared. So the regime was in terrible trouble. And it was that point, first of all, under Qasem Soleimani, the the Iranians decided they can't let the Assad regime collapse because that would be a a strategic defeat for Tehran. So Iran's Revolutionary Guard were deployed to Syria. They worked uh, with Hezbollah to, to support the Assad regime. And when those efforts, were in trouble when Islamic State appeared on the scene in early 2015. uh, Even the Iranians realized that it was going to be a battle to keep them in power. Um, And that's when the Russians came in. And the the, the Russian intervention is a really fascinating area. And as you'll have seen, I've, I've got two or three chapters of the book examining in detail the Russian intervention which many people think was was almost a training exercise for Putin's subsequent invasion of Ukraine. And a lot of the Russian generals that were deployed to Syria in support of Assad later um, were responsible for overseeing Russian forces, attacking Ukraine. So, I mean, I I would also say that the Russians didn't really have much of an enemy in Syria, which is why they bombed Aleppo and committed their own war crimes. Um, But the Russian intervention, which came following a personal intervention by Qasem Soleimani, who went to uh, Moscow and saw Putin and said, you know, you've got two bases, you, the Russians have two bases in the eastern Mediterranean. If you don't act now, you'll lose them. So the Russians came in and they turned the tide of the war in favour of the Assad regime. Um, defeated Islamic State, or helped defeat Islamic State, reclaimed lots of the main cities with the help of um, Iranian forces on the ground. And that's why Assad is still in power today.
1: And despite all that he did, butchering his people, destroying his country, Assad has been invited to rejoin the Arab League What does that tell us about the values and politics of the 22 nations that belong to the Arab League?
2: Well, I can't think of a more morally bankrupt gesture um, than inviting the Assad clan um, back into the Arab fold. And I would further say that when the United Arab Emirates recently hosted the climate change talks in Dubai, um, they also invited... Assad uh, to attend. So Assad, Assad is not just being rehabilitated by the Arab world. The fact that he was he was allowed to attend the the uh, or participate in the climate change talks, which is a, a global body, shows that the world is moving to to rehabilitate the Assad regime, which I find appalling. I mean, we've managed. The world has managed to bring war crimes charges against Vladimir Putin for his behavior in Ukraine, and yet nothing or hardly anything is being done to bring the Assad uh, crowd to justice. I think the French have now finally taken measures to charge Bashar Assad with war crimes, but they are a lone voice, and the international community at the moment I fear, has, feels they've got far, far more important priorities to address, particularly after the October the 7th attacks and the whole issue of whether you know, the conflict in Gaza will escalate into a wider regional war. I think that is the focus of the international community at the moment. And for that reason, Bashar al-Assad is still is continuing to escape justice. <laughs>
1: Well, he escaped it long before October 7th. There are many, many years that the international community could have acted and uh, chose not to. Uh, Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, But you bring me to the final question, Khan. It is a volatile world and very dangerous, and forecasting is a tricky business. But uh, you've been a longtime observer of the Middle East, so take a chance. Tell us where you think the region is headed.
2: Well, I think, first of all, despite all the international um, criticism, I think the Netanyahu government will be steadfast um, in its quest to destroy Hamas as a military force in Gaza. I don't think I have no, no, and, and people who've read my columns in the Telegraph will see I've been very staunch in my support for Israel. And its right to defend itself after the appalling events of October the seventh, and I think the IDF is is proceeding in a in a very professional manner to root out the whole Hamas terrorist infrastructure. So, and I think I think Israel will continue with this, barring some terrible uh, mishap, um, which is always possible in warfare. But barring that, I think the the Israeli government is united. In its determination to eradicate um, the evil, as you describe it, of Hamas, and that will continue f- for many weeks to come until the job is done. What happens to Gaza after that? I mean, back in 2005, I was in Gaza when the Israeli, the IDF, withdrew from Gaza and handed over to the Palestinians, and there were, you yeah. know, there were high hopes then that the Palestinians might be able to get some kind of self-governing structure in place that that would improve the lives of ordinary palestinians that never happened because Hamas seized power and killed a lot of its um palestinian opponents and it's established its own dictatorship in Hamas so in gaza so what happens after the idf has completed its um operations is a big question as for the rest of the region again i think the the, the the uncompromising nature of the Israeli response to October the 7th, certainly the political, uh, the military response, is called the bluff of Iran and its proxies. I mean, we've had a lot of um, declarations from Tehran, from Hezbollah, from others about you know, the, the, the dire consequences that would follow if Israel invaded um, Gaza. And we had the same sort of warnings from Putin when when the West came to Ukraine's defense. But we've called their bluff. The Iranians do not want a direct confrontation with Israel and the West, nor does Hezbollah. And you've seen that they're playing at the edges. they're they're trying to be provocative. They're trying to reassure their supporters that they are committed to fighting Israel. But this isn't a, a, they're, they're not they're not doing anything really troubling at the moment. You know, the Houthi Houthi rebels disrupting traffic in the Red Sea. I expect a very well armed naval presence to be established, led by the US, the UK and others, to to limit the damage the Houthis can do. Iran itself does not want a direct confrontation. It's it's encouraging its proxies to to destabilise the region. But I think everybody's aware of the limitations of Iran and its proxies. And this can all be contained if Israel and its allies show the resolve to keep keep these these uh, groups from overstepping the mark.
1: Well, I certainly hope you're right in your forecast. At the moment, as we speak, uh, Hezbollah is has made the northern part of Israel unlivable. Uh, but I trust uh, that will be resolved before too long. The book, it, the book is Assad: The Triumph of Tyranny. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Khan.
2: My pleasure, René. Thanks for having me.
1: And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasakoff.